Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 81. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on July 22nd, 2022, in a secure, undisclosed location in Princeton, New Jersey. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Okay, as Sam Harris would say, time for a bit of housekeeping, mostly relevant for those of you following along in close to real time. As previously announced, I've got a lot of commitments and fun travel and other stuff this summer, so I'll get out episodes as I can write them and record them and edit them. This week, that'll happen to be on Friday, but that's only happenstance. My wife's flying out east later today, and tomorrow we begin a week-long New England driveabout, which will include some historical stuff from Plymouth, Boston, and the coast of Maine, and then a couple of cool weeks, literally cool weeks, in the Adirondacks. I'm sure I'll share pictures and such on Twitter and maybe the Facebook page, and as usual, I'll tell you where I'm recording this or that episode. Things should return to more regular cadence toward the end of August. So before we jump in, let's talk a little bit about this day in history. 435 years ago today, John White and the 1587 Roanoke Expedition arrived off the coast of North Carolina's Outer Banks. If you listen to our series, Set Fair for Roanoke, you know that it did not turn out well. The last couple of episodes have been a little cerebral, heavier on the intellectual history than the fun and ugly parts. Never fear, there will be a legitimate body count in the next few, although nothing like the horrors of Jamestown in its early years. The Pilgrims probably weren't much fun at parties, but in 1620, they were legitimately the most peaceful and least venal of the thousands of Europeans who'd already come to today's United States. This is clearly one of the reasons why most Americans, at least those who think of themselves as descended from Europeans, have looked to Plymouth for inspiration rather than Jamestown, Sagatahawk Popham, Roanoke, St. Augustine, Pensacola, remember that one, or Santa Fe or any of the even less successful settlements and expeditions we've covered over the last 80 episodes. Suffice it to say that this episode and those that follow will be a bit easier to follow if you have recently listened to the three Road to Plymouth episodes, plus last week's on the Mayflower Compact, which is called the Mayflower Moment in History. The Pilgrims might have reached the New World without William Bradford. But if he had not been along, they probably wouldn't have survived as a settlement. And even if they had, their story would not be our most prominent national origin story. As Nathaniel Philbrick put it in his classic book, Mayflower, which I'm sure many of you have actually read, without Bradford's steady, often forceful leadership, it's doubted that there ever would have been a colony. And his book of Plymouth Plantation, which Philbrick calls the greatest book written in 17th century America, is essential to our understanding of them. We shall get to Bradford in short order. But before we do that, let's look at a moment in the life of a fellow named Stephen Hopkins, who would be the only Mayflower passenger who had been to the New World before. Hopkins had been an indentured servant aboard the Sea Venture, the flagship of the famous third supply fleet of Jamestown that had wrecked on Bermuda. 
Like most of the passengers, he'd lived and made it to Jamestown in May 1610, just after the starving time. He would survive the next rough winter as well, during which the population of the colony would fall from 375 to 150. He'd lived through the First Anglo-Powhatan War, stay at Jamestown until 1616, serve out the term of his indenture, and return to England at some point that year, perhaps on the same ship that carried John Rolfe and Pocahontas to London. Long-standing listeners with near-photographic memories will recall that there had been some civil unrest among the castaways on Bermuda during that fateful winter of 1609-1610. For the benefit of those with normal memories, here's what we said back then, quote, If the passengers and crew of the Sea Venture were to get off Bermuda and go to Virginia, they would have to do it themselves. Unfortunately, their ranks were divided. A group of commoners decided that it would be much better to settle Bermuda than go to Virginia. They argued that, having been cast back into a state of nature, old formulations of governance no longer applied, including especially the authority of Gates and Summers. Everyone should have a say. These dangerously leveling ideas were suppressed by force, including the threat of execution. A couple of dissenters ran off into the actual state of nature, but most of the proto-Democrats sullenly went back to work. Back to me, one of the ringleaders of the dissidents was Stephen Hopkins, at the time indentured as the clerk to the Sea Ventures chaplain. So how was it that he came to sail on Mayflower and ultimately became one of the signers of the Mayflower Compact? We shall come back to that. Suffice it to say that Hopkins was almost certainly more important to the ultimate survival of the Pilgrims than history gives him credit for. William Bradford came into the world on the 19th of March, 1590, in the still tiny town of Osterfield in Yorkshire. He was fortunate in his birth, insofar as his family had some land and a little money, but very unfortunate in his childhood. By the time he had turned 12, his father, mother, and a sister had died, as had the grandfather who had raised him when he was orphaned. He moved in with a couple of uncles who probably took him in more out of duty than avuncular love. Soon after, he was stricken with, quote, a mysterious ailment that prevented him from working in the fields. One not need be a psychotherapist, or married to one as I am, to wonder if Bradford's illness, coming as it did on the heels of so much loss in his own family, wasn't somatic. Regardless, not having computer games into which to retreat or Reddit to surf, Bradford took to reading. Here's Philbrick's account, quote, Lonely and intelligent, he looked to the Bible for consolation and guidance. For a boy in need of instruction, the Geneva Bible, translated in the previous century by a small team of English ministers and equipped with helpful notes and appendices, was just the thing. There was also John Fox's Book of Martyrs, a compelling, tremendously popular account of the Protestants martyred by Queen Elizabeth's Catholic predecessor on the throne, Bloody Mary. Fox's insistence that England was, like Israel before it, God's chosen nation, had a deep and lasting influence on Bradford, and as Fox made horrifyingly clear, to be a godly Englishman sometimes required a person to make the ultimate sacrifice. Back to me. For almost every person in Christendom in the early 17th century, 
The question was how best to know the will of God. For the Roman church, and almost a century after Luther's revolution, even the established Protestant churches, the intellectual intermediation and liturgical traditions of the churches added importantly to what might be understood from knowing the Bible alone. In this thinking, and greatly simplifying a debate I'm not learned enough to describe in detail, given man's, quote, fallen condition, no individual could presume to question the ancient ceremonial truths of the established church. So-called Puritans, who'd been kicking around the English church since shortly after its second establishment by Elizabeth in early 1559, argued that it was precisely man's fallen nature that precluded the mere humans in the church from bringing worshipers closer to God. Their fundamental frailty would make things worse as often as it made them better. Here's how Philbrick puts it, quote, A Puritan believed it was necessary to venture back to the absolute beginning of Christianity before the church had been corrupted by centuries of laxity and abuse to locate the divine truth. In lieu of time travel, there was the Bible, with the New Testament providing the only reliable account of Christ's time on earth, while the Old Testament contained a rich storehouse of still vital truths. If something was not in the scriptures... It was a man-made distortion of what God intended. At once radical and deeply conservative, the Puritans had chosen to spur thousands of years of accumulated tradition in favor of a text that gave them a direct and personal connection to God. It's a radio for speaking to God. A Puritan had no use for the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer, since it tampered with the original meaning of the Bible and inhibited the spontaneity that they felt was essential to attaining a true and honest glimpse of the divine. Hymns were also judged to be a corruption of God's word. Instead, a Puritan read directly from the Bible and sang scrupulously translated psalms whose meaning took precedence over the demands of rhyme and meter. As staunch primitivists, Puritans refused to kneel while taking communion since there was no evidence that the apostles had done so during the Last Supper. There was also no biblical precedence for making the sign of the cross when uttering Christ's name. Even more important, there was no precedent for the system of bishops that ran the Church of England. The only biblically sanctioned organizational unit was the individual congregation. The Puritans believed that a congregation began with a covenant between a group of believers and God. Back to me. You might ask why I describe the Puritans as so-called. Well, because the term Puritan was originally scornful opprobrium, converted by the targets into a badge of pride. The American descendants of the Puritans would eventually do the same with the word Yankee in several different iterations. Most Puritans believe, nevertheless, that they could practice their beliefs without abandoning the Church of England, at least to the extent they were left alone. Some of them, however, saw no future in continuing affiliation with the National Church and believed that the fulfillment of their relationship with God called them to separate from the Church. Many of these separatists were followers of Robert Brown and became known to history as Brownists. As long-standing and very attentive listeners will remember, Brownists began to look for a way to separate, not just in a new church, which was manifestly illegal in England, 
but also geographically, outside the jurisdiction of the church. Having discussed them at some length in our episode, The Road to Plymouth Part 1, The First Pilgrims, we'll rely on your super sharp memories rather than repeat all that again. In any case, here's your introduction to the Puritans, who will have a huge impact on early America and with whom we shall spend a fair amount of time in the intermediate future. The increasingly well-read Bradford, now a teenager, found Puritanism compelling and left Osterfield and his uncles to a congregation in the even smaller town of Scrooby, just down the road. There he found a secret congregation of Brownists under a minister named John Robinson. It was in Scrooby that Bradford would meet the town's postmaster, William Brewster, at whose home they worshipped. William and his wife, Mary, reflected their Puritan piety in the naming of their children. Wait for it, wait for it. Patience, fear, love, and wrestling. At some point in 1607, the Bishop of York opened up a can of whoop-ass. Several of the Scrooby congregants were tossed in the prison, and others saw that they were being tailed and surveilled. Robinson and Brewster decided that they would leave the country with as many of their flock as were able, and 17-year-old Bradford left with them. They went to Amsterdam to enjoy religious freedom under the Dutch. The Scrooby Brownists were not the only English separatists to flee to Holland. Amsterdam would turn out to be full of separatist intramural controversy over such doctrinal matters as infant baptism and various other things. Robinson would soon lead his people to Leiden, a liberal university town, but I repeat myself, where they could establish their church on their own terms. Now back to Philbrick, quote, William Bradford soon emerged as one of the leading members of the congregation. When he turned 21 in 1611, he sold the property he'd inherited in Osterfield and used the proceeds to purchase a small house. A fustian, that would be a corduroy worker in your awesome new vocabulary word of the day. Bradford became a citizen of Leiden in 1612 in recognition of his high standing in the community. In 1613, he married Dorothy May, and four years later, they had a son, John. But Bradford's life in Leiden was not without its setbacks. At one point, some poor business decisions resulted in the loss of a significant portion of his inheritance. In typical Puritan fashion, he interpreted this as, quote, a correction bestowed by God for certain decays of internal piety. Back to me, life in Leiden was free, but not easy as is often the case with freedom. The Scrooby separatists had been farmers and shepherds in England, but now were thrown into early 17th century industrial employment to earn their keep. Men, women, and children were expected to work from dawn to dusk six days a week. With a Sabbath devoted to the Lord, there was little time for family, learning, or even rest. Worse, the children were growing up Dutch, visibly losing touch with their Englishness. The Leiden separatists began to look for another place to start over, and the obvious alternative in a Europe riven by religious war. The awful Thirty Years' War started in 1618 with the famous defenestration of Prague. Was Virginia, then still broadly defined by the English to mean most of the eastern seaboard of today's United States. The pilgrims went about looking for a patent, a license to settle somewhere in the domain of King James, 
and they also needed a ride. Their problem was that they really had no clue about business. William Brewster, the most sophisticated of the Leideners in such matters, had gone underground for publishing various screeds against the Church of England. In Philbrick's account, the pilgrims would, quote, time and again demonstrate an extraordinary talent for getting duped. Notwithstanding the general opposition to separatism in the court of King James, however, practical men saw an opportunity to move the separatists much farther from England and at the same time expand the English footprint in North America. The various settlements in the region of the Chesapeake were on the upswing. John Rolfe's tobacco and his triumphant tour of London with Pocahontas had rekindled optimism for that region of Virginia. But they were still burning through a ridiculous amount of cash and bodies. Deacon John Carver and another separatist, Robert Cushman, opened up negotiations to secure a patent to settle in the territory of the London, Virginia Company, which notionally ran from the outer banks of North Carolina to the mouth of the Hudson River. In 1619, they got an English patent to settle the lower Hudson, the northern boundary of the Virginia Company's authority. But they still needed a ship and money for supplies. The Dutch, who had designs on the Hudson River and were still some years from establishing New Amsterdam on Manahatta, got wind of the separatist plans to emigrate to a territory they considered theirs. And so they offered to underwrite the separatist colony on apparently fair terms. The pilgrims declined, though, no small part because they wanted to preserve their Englishness. They would later discover that the rebuffed Dutch then decided to sabotage them. The pilgrims then turned to a merchant adventurer from London named Thomas Weston. Weston represented a group of mostly Puritan, but not separatist, investors who saw an opportunity for profit and to extend their religion, sort of an early ESG mandate, for those of you who think that is a new thing. They cut a deal with Weston, which would require that the pilgrims work four days a week for the investors, two for themselves, and keep the Sabbath holy. By the spring of 1620, the pilgrims were ready, in their own minds anyway, to depart. Sadly, like the more duplicitous venture capitalists of today, Weston would pull a bait and switch. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. By June 1620, he had not purchased the promised ship, and he'd changed the terms of the deal. The pilgrims would now spend six days a week working for the investors. As are more troubling, Weston now insisted that the expedition include non-separatists, including men with skills who would increase the chances of success. These strangers, many of whom were probably Puritans but not separatists, would amount to roughly half of the planned passenger list and would include Stephen Hopkins and his family. Robert Cushman caved and agreed to the new terms without consulting the other pilgrims. The pilgrims were, not surprisingly, outraged, but they were also over a barrel. While Weston looked for a suitable ship, they decided to hedge their bets and buy a small sailing vessel of their own in Holland. If Weston came through, it would still be useful for coastal work and probably, or possibly anyway, a means of escape if the settlement failed. The pilgrims hired a 50-foot ship named, unfortunately, the Speedwell, and a master known to history only as Mr. Reynolds. Reynolds and the crew signed contracts for a year of service and refit the ship with two new and larger masts. 
At the time, the unsophisticated pilgrims thought nothing of it. But it would turn out that the larger masts were perfidious sabotage. The Bradfords prepared to leave and reluctantly decided to leave their three-year-old son in the care of Dorothy's parents in Amsterdam, rather than subject him to the huge risks in front of them. This decision, too, would be fateful, or at least appears to us that way. Weston, meanwhile, had acquired the services of a sturdy, sweet ship called the Mayflower. It was sweet not because it was, you know, sweet, dude, but because it had been used to import wine. Wine ships were said to be sweet because the wine that leaked out of the barrels in the hold would permeate the wood and make such ships smell less disgusting, even if they were still incredibly disgusting, than ships that carried other stuff. The Mayflower was about 100 feet in length and therefore three times the capacity of the Speedwell. In July 1620, the Speedwell sailed from Holland with those separatists who would make the first voyage. Pastor Robinson would not come along, but he saw his flock off in an emotional convocation that the locals would remember for years to come. Here's how William Bradford describes it in Of Plymouth Plantation. Quote, And the time being come that they must depart, they were accompanied with most of their brethren out of the city, unto a town sundry miles off called Delfshaven, where the ship lay ready to receive them. So they left that goodly and pleasant city which had been their resting place near twelve years. But they knew they were pilgrims, and looked not much on those things, but lift up their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, and quieted their spirits. It was owing to this passage, first printed in 1669, that the Mayflower's company came eventually to be called the Pilgrim Fathers. So that's how it started. The plan was for Speedwell to meet the Mayflower, which was sailing from London with both the Strangers and other separatists, in Southampton. The Mayflower was commanded by Christopher Jones, a seasoned and responsible captain. The Mayflower carried William Brewster, who had emerged from underground, and Miles Standish, the military officer the Pilgrims hired in lieu of John Smith. Smith would claim later that the Pilgrims turned him down because they would not meet his price, but it's more likely that they knew that his strong personality would overwhelm them. Standish seemed the more compatible choice, and the hiring of him would turn out to be one of the better decisions the Leideners made in those early days. The two ships left Southampton in late July, but the Speedwell soon sprang leaks. It was agreed that the ships would put into Dartmouth, only 75 miles to the west, for repairs. By August 17, 1620, they departed a second time. Within 200 miles of Land's End, the Speedwell began to leak again, and the ships turned back again, this time to Plymouth. The problem, it turned out, was the new and taller masts. The pressure of the wind on their sails was too great for the small ship, and because of the greater leverage, seams in the planking would open up and let in water. The Pilgrims sold the ship for a song and consolidated on the now extremely crowded Mayflower. The Pilgrims would learn only decades later that Mr. Reynolds had conspired with the Dutch to install the tall masts and effectively sabotage the Speedwell. After the Pilgrims sold it, the Speedwell was remasted properly and went on to serve as a valuable merchant ship for many years. 
At Plymouth, several of the Leideners gave up. Separatists now made up just under half of the final passenger list of 102. On September 6, 1620, the now very crowded Mayflower set out again for New York Harbor under what Bradford described as a prosperous wind. It is almost impossible to imagine how difficult it must have been for those families on the Mayflower. In 1957, a replica was built and the voyage reenacted. The Mayflower, too, is identical to the original in most respects, but the tween decks, the space between the deck and the hold, was given eight feet of headroom in the modern vessel. On the original, there were less than five feet of headroom, cramped and painful even for male Europeans of the day who averaged around five foot six. 102 passengers, including three pregnant women, spent 10 weeks in this barely lit space, roughly 80 by 20 feet. That's 1,600 square feet, a bit less than the average American single-family house in 1973, and far less than the average in 2020, which was about 40% more at 2,260 square feet. So imagine your house with four-and-a-half-foot ceilings and 102 people living in it for 10 weeks. More, actually, because very few of them went ashore when the ships stopped for weeks in Dartmouth and Plymouth. They all stayed on board. Oh, and all the food, water, and beer has to be kept in the barrels in the basement. Now turn off the lights and allow only a little light through the windows. And put the house on a rocker so it pitches to and fro. And you only get to go outside occasionally. True, those people would have been a fair bit shorter and profoundly thinner than Americans today but it does not take much imagination to understand how brutal the trip must have been. Remarkably, almost nobody died. One of the sailors, not counted in the 102, fell sick and died. A couple others. And a servant almost died, but by blind luck or divine intervention, didn't. The background was interesting. It was the nature of the Mayflower's front-heavy design, only discover when the Mayflower II sailed in the 1590s, that if in a gale it furled its sails and faced into the wind, it would become astonishingly stable, seemingly calm. So now let's go to Philbrick's story, quote, In the fall of 1620, the Mayflower's ability to steady herself in a gale produced a most deceptive tranquility for a young indentured servant named John Howland, as the Mayflower lay a hull, Howland apparently grew restless down below. He saw no reason why he could not venture out of the fetid depths of the tween decks just for a moment. And after more than a month as a passenger ship, the Mayflower was no longer a sweet ship, and Howland wanted some air. So he climbed a ladder to one of the hatches and stepped out onto the deck. Howland was from the inland town of Fenstanton, Huntingtonshire, and he quickly discovered that the deck of a tempest-tossed ship was no place for a landsman. Even if the ship had found her own still point, the gale continued to rage with astonishing violence around her. The shriek of the wind through the rope rigging was terrifying, as was the sight of all those towering spume-flecked waves. The Mayflower lurched suddenly to leeward, 
Alan staggered to the ship's rail and tumbled into the sea. That should have been the end of him. But dangling over the side and trailing behind the ship was the topsail halyard, the rope used to raise and lower the upper sail. Alan was in his mid-twenties and strong, and when his hand found the halyard, he gripped the rope with such feral desperation that even though he was pulled down more than ten feet below the ocean's surface, he never let go. Several sailors took up the halyard and hauled Howland back in, finally snagging him with a boat hook and dragging him onto the deck. When Bradford wrote about this incident more than a decade later, John Howland was not only alive and well, but he and his wife Elizabeth were on their way to raising ten children, who would in turn produce an astounding 88 grandchildren. Back to me. There are an estimated Two million Americans descended from John and Elizabeth Howland. More than one in 200, or about six-tenths of one percent of our entire population. By the numbers, there are undoubtedly listeners to this podcast descended from the Howlands. If you know you are among them, send me a note, and we'll report it in a subsequent episode. The very design that made the Mayflower so stable in a gale made it difficult to maneuver into headwinds. That in the Gulf Stream meant that the packed ship averaged a mere two miles an hour in its crossing. Disease began to set in. Then on November 9, 1620, they spotted land. The land was not the land they were looking for. The Gulf Stream had kept them too far north, and they were on the backside of Cape Cod, so named for the English, who as long-standing and attentive listeners well know, by Bartholomew Gosnold in 1602. Desperate as they were to land, the weather was fair, and a wind blew down from the north. They made the decision to persist toward the mouth of the Hudson. The challenge for Master Jones and his pilot was that they had no good charts, Yes, Gosnold had made it through to Martha's Vineyard and spent some time on the Elizabeth Islands, which formed Buzzard's Bay in 1602. But the area was, and is, packed with islands and treacherous currents. Champlain had seen the same thing in 1606. John Smith had concluded in 1614 that the charts that existed were, quote, so much waste paper that they cost me more. Smith himself had proceeded no further than the elbow of Cape Cod. Jones was sailing into fundamentally uncharted waters. All went well for a few hours with the leadsman. He's the guy who sounded for the bottom with a lead weight on a rope as the ship picked along very carefully. Was busy monitoring the depth. But then the tide turned, as it does, and the wind shifted from the south and suddenly the waters got dangerously shallow, just as they found themselves in the midst of the Pollock Rip, the very treacherous waters between the elbow of the Cape and Nantucket. The Mayflower spent several harrowing hours being whipped around in very dangerous waters. Philbrick says that it is estimated that half the wrecks along the entire Atlantic and Gulf coasts of today's United States occurred in this one area. Stephen Hopkins, who'd survived the Sea Venture wreck more than 11 years before, must have been having flashbacks when Jones finally got control in the late afternoon as the winter sun was setting. He made the fateful decision to sail back up the Cape to New England. 
They sailed the next morning, November 10th, and by nightfall, they were just off the tip of the Cape. The decision to go back to New England was not insignificant, even at the time, because the Pilgrims had no patent to settle there. The passengers, separatists, and strangers alike argued the decision. What were they to do? Bradford, Brewster, and the other leaders crafted a covenant for self-governance known to us and all of you devoted listeners who are up to date as the Mayflower Compact. We discussed that moment and its significance in the last episode, the Mayflower Moment in History, so I won't belabor it here except to observe that the sole link between the Mayflower Compact and the Sea Venture dissenters who demanded that everybody have a say was Stephen Hopkins. It's not hard to imagine that Hopkins was a vocal participant in the deliberations, or perhaps emotional arguments, that led to the compact. The next morning, November 11th, the men gathered in the main cabin of the ship and almost to a man signed the compact. Jones sailed the Mayflower into Provincetown Harbor. They were well offshore because the harbor was too shallow for the Mayflower's draft out to about an eighth of a mile. This is a good place to stop for today. Next week, as long as my muse authorizes it, we'll tell the story of the first exploration of Cape Cod and the eventual decision to settle at Patuxet, John Smith's Plymouth. So you know the drill. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it and that you tell your worthiest friends... Spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice. Write us a nice review on Apple and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, like maybe pictures from my upcoming New England road trip, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.